Okay, kicking dirt, Mike and Adam. Today is uh, August 15th already. Wowzers. Yeah, middle of August. We got about 30 more days of this growing season, I guess, and we'll be in the harvest. Wow. You think 30 days? I don't know. Yeah, I think I just made that up. I just made that up. I was just looking <laughs> to see when black corn is going to black layer, and a lot of it can black layer in 30 days. So. I know, and I agree with you. I went through a bunch of history stuff, um, looking at the weather forecast, too, and some of these big fields that we're really trying to push yields on, 117, 120-day corn could easily black layer in the next 30 days. Yeah. And it's a little concerning to see some dense pushing already, too. I know it. I, I was just saying that that I, I welcome the cool weather this week, you know, cooler, that it's just in the 80s, because M90 degrees is just pushing corn maturity, and I, I don't like that fast fill. You know, the, the kernels are shallow. We need just some slow down of this fill and, and get some kernel depth built into these years. So there's potential there yet. It's just, I, w- I hope we don't get the high temps anymore. Yeah. Good luck with that. Looks like the forecast is supposed to go back to fairly high temps again. Welcome <laughs> yeah. today. Anyway, we're, we're going to welcome it. Okay. This episode, we are going to go north of the border. We're going to take this thing international today. Are we going? Are we going South Dakota, or where are we going north of the border? Oh, north of the border. No, we're going, we're going to go. We're going all the way up to Canada. I know North Dakota is somewhat international, or did you say South Dakota? I don't know. South Dakota. You spent a ton of time up in Fargo here over the last year, so you should you should yes. know what's going on. Yes, I do. I know Fargo well. On there, my, I have a son right. lives there. But we're gonna we're gonna talk to Paul Hermans. I got to apologize already right off the start. I have made I have made it through two years, almost three, shit, almost four years of not being sick. Made it through. Never had COVID. Never had a cold. Never been sick. Wake up Saturday morning, feel like crap. And so today's Monday morning, still feel like crap. And gonna do this podcast. So I apologize for coughing, sniffing, hacking snot all over you guys virtually. But <laughs> we're gonna get through it. So anyway, sorry about that, Paul. Introductions. We have Paul. Herman's from Ottawa, Canada, right? And Ottawa is in Ontario. It's in Ontario, right? And Adam, it's great to be here. Whenever you talk about Canada, you got to put the A on the end of it, though, right? That's what we do up here in Canada. But yeah, Paul Herman's the area agronomist. I live in eastern Ontario, and um, Ottawa is our capital. Probably a lot of you folks won't know where that is, but it's about an hour north of New York State, New York State, Canada border, basically, Ontario border. An From hour north. An hour they, north. Do they speak French there, Paul? I, I'm in a, a big French area. I'd say half the people in the area speak French. I unfortunately don't speak French, but uh, I border close to Quebec, which is a, a big French uh, province. So, yes, a lot of French in my area. Wow. Gosh, I never I never even thought of that. That So, your customer base, a lot of English and French? Yeah, or I mainly would say English? 95% of, of my customer base would speak English, and but there's uh, a few of them out there that just speak French. But luckily, we have our, our Pioneer sales reps. They all speak both languages, so we get by and uh, yeah, get by day to day. And they talk about Paul behind his back in French. It, exactly. <laughs> you, you never know what they're saying and everything else. So it's a bit of a challenge, but I, I can pick a few words up. I know the swear words, so if they're talking about ability, I can pick that up. <laughs> Oh, Man, I, I think I think of all of our challenges, and this is way, way out there, you know, just got brought up. I wasn't even thinking about this earlier, but all of the challenges that we have in agriculture and and communicating uh, to our customers, I, I rarely think of a language barrier, you know, and, and 
that is something that you have to struggle with or you deal with or that area could deal with at times even is just translating what you want to be said to what they hear. I mean, most of the time I feel like I'm speaking a foreign language when I'm talking to these customers on how to get things done, but you truly are at times. It's It's a challenge. And it's just trying to get stuff, you know, two written languages and everything else and and two catalogs and everything else that we do within Pioneer. But uh, we seem to manage and and get through it on a, on a daily basis. Oh, so you do actually print a French and an English version? Yes, we, uh, we do catalog, our, huh? our head office and everything else. They do all that. And then you start thinking about, you know, web pages and things like Grandler Insight programs and everything else. So it's uh, it's a bit of extra cost, but it's worthwhile because we've got a lot of good uh, French speaking customers. Huh. Yeah. So, so your area, Paul, is, is uh, corn, beans, or what's the crop rotation up so, in that area? In my area, it's we're still about 40% livestock based. We still got a lot of dairy operations in my area, which is good from a, a crop rotation standpoint, but mainly corns, uh, corn, soybeans, and either spring grains or winter wheat starting to come more into my area. And then alfalfa would be a, a key crop as well. Now, if I so, get into southern, southern Ontario, it's more of a corn, uh, bean, wheat, winter wheat rotation. So differences in, in the province of Ontario, for sure. A lot of silage, I imagine, with dairy there, huh? A lot of silage, yeah. We're looking at probably, you know, three weeks out. Um, silage should start that first week of September, and we're anxious about that. And I think crops uh, in our area look fantastic. We're not like you guys. We can't turn the, the sprinklers on when we need it. We're waiting for the pennies or, or dollars from heaven to come when we need them. So that's one big difference between us and Nebraska is, is that we don't have irrigation in our area. Just waiting for Mother Nature. So 100% rain fed, zero irrigation. Zero irrigation. All right. The annual so rainfall rain, is what thirty inches. It's uh, I'm going to say on we're talking January to January, it would twenty six thirty yes, but it's it's and again the the issue that we have is we can be feast or famine. So in my area last week we got two some guys got seven inches of rain in oh. a twenty four thirty hour period, but I drive four um, hours away to the west and no rainfall in like three to four week period. And just, yeah. just waiting for waiting for that rain. So that that's a key thing that we always talk with our customers about is, hey, what can we do to increase water holding capacity? And and talking a lot about you know rotation, cover crops, um, plant health, increasing organic matter, those type of things definitely are, are on their horizon here in Ontario. So you probably struggle a little bit. I I just go back to my days in North Dakota that they till a lot to warm the soil up, and yet that's a not a benefit because they're trying to raise, you know, have no till and they have a residue on top so the soil don't blow. Um, are you guys struggling with warming the soil up or you get plenty of heat? Units? Well, well, that's that's the thing. It's 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 kind of funny because you go through, we normally start planting the end of April, that first week of May. And the first of April, we can still have a foot of snow on the ground. And it, it's a quick <laughs> turn of the, of the light switch, so to speak, with Mother Nature and everything else that just heats up and everything and gets going. But we definitely need to, to do some some form of tillage. We get more people looking at strip tillage, that type of thing, just to warm the soils up, um, dry it out and everything else going forward. And and our biggest thing is it's it's sure it's that early planning we want to get on, but it's trying to avoid that white combine in September. When we talk about that, that's that's frost that can come through. Two out of five years, we can get a frost the middle of September and, and we might be at half milk line, three quarters milk line, almost maturity. So it's those first few planting days early on in spring can really make a difference to help us get that crop through on the end. I, I've been, well, I'm starting my 26th year with Pioneer, and I remember a key breeder always told me for every day that we miss 
in the spring, we got to make up two days in the fall, and it's hard to make those two days up in a lot of fall situations. So you said for every day you miss in the spring, later you plant, you got to make it up two days later in the fall. Yeah, it's for, for every day that we miss in the spring, it pretty well takes two days in the fall to make up for that for that difference. And it's just again, we don't have you know sun setting lower in 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 the um, in the sky. You guys were talking about temperatures. You know, this weekend we were. 77 to 80 degrees and we got down to to 50 55 degrees at night here in the last two nights oh my. so it's a it's it's a different world and it's it's good for grain fill in a way right because we don't have those hot respiring nights it gives the the corn opportunity to kind of slow down and set up for the next day but if we start getting 45 degrees or lower the corn can actually shut down for a day it just slows right down and and we lose that day, so to speak. So we really start watching come September nighttime temperatures. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny you mentioned the white combine. The white combine in Nebraska is hail. Hail. Okay. <laughs> and you say you say the white combine up there is frost. It's frost. <laughs> so exactly. It's a different perspective there. Give us a little insight on soil. So when when we're talking again, we we've got big extremes in terms of soil textures, organic matter, everything else, and they're going I'm sure you do as well. We go, I mean, a lot of, to what I call almost like a blow sand up to a heavy clay, but a lot of my area, I've got a nice loam soil with organic matters. We can be three, 4% in my area. No problem. Some guys, six or 7% organic matter. Then you get into, yeah, we, we do have some peat soils. They're, they're limited in acres, but uh, really high organic matter. But, but in generally our organic matter in Eastern Ontario is, is good because we have that crop rotation with the livestock still, still. You know, heavily a lot of manure still in the area, good crop rotation that definitely helps helps with our crop uh, production going forward. One of the big issues we have was white mold. Mm-hmm. You guys might not have that out in your area, but but this year, I mean, our grass, our lawn right now, I, I have to cut it every five, six days. So it tells you there's a, there's a lot of moisture there and we can run into white mold. Haven't seen it yet, but it starts to uh, come in around, you know, mid-August and we can lose 25, 30 bushels just like that with white mold uh, disease. So that's probably a big one from, from a soybean standpoint. What, what do your guys do uh, uh, to treat it? Uh, is it management or is it spraying or? Mold yeah. So or? it's, it's, if we're in Mike, if we're in um, a historical field with white mold and, and we kind of looked at first of July, what, what's the, the weather environment, but we do a two pass system, two passes of fungicide. And we tend to go in that R one and a half R two, and then come back 10 to 14 days later. Um, we're trying to get more guys, you know, if I look at my customers, the ones that have no-till generally don't have as much uh, white mold as, as guys that till. And then variety selection would probably be the, the next big one as well. So we, we've got, we do a, again, I work in the impact plots. We do screening and stuff. And and it's that's a big thing that we look at um, for products going forward. So if we've got a score of three or lower, we definitely don't even go with it with that with that variety. A four, uh, it, it depends if we really need it or not. So we, we're trying to get five, six scores um, for, for our soybean varieties from a white mold standpoint. So th- those are kind of some of the big things. In it. And then obviously crop rotation too, trying to get guys with crop rotation w- with white mold. But that two-pass fungicide, but, mo- most <clears throat> of our guys are buying into that, no problem. What you said was interesting. You said no-till has less white mold and tilled soil has more white mold. Yes, and that's all going to get get back to that sclerotinia because so that fruiting body, you know, when you split the, 
the soybean plant at harvest time you got those little i call them like little turds look like mouse turds yeah right? little black little black, <laughs> little black things hanging on there yeah they, they yeah. go back into the ground but um you know tillage standpoint then you come in next year two years down the road you're working them back bringing them back up to that soil surface within an inch or two whereas the no-till they stay on top you got more you know bugs insects that work at mother nature just tends to degrade it more so we don't see as much in no-till as we do in until conventionally tilled ground i see and it, it's worse too we get i mean more on that loam really you know I, i'm six foot two and we can get uh up to my chest level growth and and so it's it's certain fields out there especially those loam seal loam soils that um tend to have good moisture holding capacity good growth those are the fields that tend to be worse as well from a, from a mold I, standpoint i imagine they're all 30 inch rows or they narrow rows no most of our rows are going to be seven and a half to 15s and oh. again we're we're north we don't have that you know it, it's to get at the canopy in as quick as we can and i always like to have at least six trifoliates on my beans before they start to flower so i want to i want to get in early as i can get the canopy that to, to you know canopy in as quick as i can for weed control and everything else and just to capture more sunlight and and that's one thing that you know we do with that and then also looking at you know, on the corn side, we do a lot of, I've done a lot of research work with populations over the last 10, 15 years. And, and we seem to do better with higher populations just because we can capture more sunlight. I always tell my growers, think of it as a solar panel. We got your solar farmers, right? And, and how do we capture that sunlight to make the best that we can? 2016, 2017, we did a lot of work in soybeans at, at 170 and 120,000 um, seeds per acre. And, and the 120,000 on the good soils out yielded the 170, no problem. So I always tell my guys, you know, if I got waist high to chest high bean environment, go lower population. If I'm kind of in that knee to lower, I'm gonna I'm gonna increase my my population. So we definitely have come a long way. We used to have guys that would be 200, 220,000 seeds per acre. Now we're down in that more 120, 140,000. With some guys even looking at maybe going lower um, on the right right conditions. But again, we can run into early spring. You know, the end of May, sometimes we get a frost, just that light frost that knocks some of our stands out. We had that two years ago that about 15% of my area had to replant all their acres. So I agree, I agree with you. If you're in that very good yield environment, like in your situation where you said, you know, beans are going to get mid chest, shoulder high. We don't get quite that high, but you know that that's a good growing environment if that's going to happen. And that population, lower populations tend to bring more yield in that. But the population piece is just a piece of that management, really. I, I hate the fact that people come out and say, well, less soybean, plant less soybeans per acre and you get higher yields. And I, Because I don't believe that to be true. I believe that less soybeans per acre in those high yield env environments are offsetting other agronomic factors. Yeah, and, and that's, again, I would agree with you there. Our biggest agronomic factor that we got is white mold. Yeah, and so and lo we, lodging. And in, in lodging and everything else. And it's one thing they have one plant that, that gets mold, but if it starts to lodge over and falls, the next door neighbor gets it and it kind of continues on. So that's probably our biggest thing is, you know, to a degree is helping to manage white mold is with reduced, reduced populations. Yeah. Now I yeah. would say though, Adam too, you know, <laughs> if I take a look at our soybean varieties that we've got today compared to 15 years ago, we got a lot more branching, just seem to be more aggressive varieties that that can crank on yield with, with in general a lower population for our environment and we're 
we're in an 06 to a 1.2 maturity zone is okay. generally the zone that I covered just to let the listeners know, you know, a little bit different world than what you're in. 0. 0.6. 0. 0.6. <laughs> yeah. Six. yeah. We pretty much run from 1.8 to 3.1. So okay. a little fuller season on that. Okay. It's kind of interesting. We, we at, at the agronomy conference, was it two or three years ago? I remember <clears throat> talking about variable rate soybeans versus variable rate corn. And we were talking about the good parts of the field of the corn. You know, you kick up your populations there and the, and the lower yielding areas of the corn, you'd, you'd drop your population back a bit. And soybeans being the inverse, just what you said, the high fertility, good growing areas, you cut back the population. And then in the, in the tougher areas where the beans don't get it quite as big, then you kick up the population. So it's kind of interesting looking at how they are inverse of each other. Exactly. I did I did some work a few years ago on variable rate seeding for corn, and, and we were picking up six to 10 bushels. And where we picked up the biggest yield gain was in the dry areas of the field. So, the, you know, the, the sharper sands where they just didn't have that moisture holding uh, capacity going into grain fill, and, and we would get, you know, 15 to 20 bushels there. So I'm a big believer in both variable rate seeding for, for corn and beans and what it can bring um, going forward. I, I agree 100%. And I also personally agree or, or would argue that I think in soybeans, there's a bigger benefit to variable rate planting even than there is corn right now, just due to the to the nature of what corn is and making sure if we're going to increase populations, everything else needs to be matched up with it to get real top end yield, right. where beans are a little bit more forgiving. You know, you can vary that that population around and and uh, they're going to flex more to the environment and give you that different yields. So I really encourage people to to look into that variable rate seeding on soybeans. This year screwed us big time on that as far as if we're looking for any good data out of, out of Nebraska on variable <laughs> rate beans. Uh, not going to happen because all the freeze and hail that we took early on, it really took out a, a lot of that. And, and when you look at these lower populations that were planted in the best areas, low-lying areas, of fields or, you know, your high yielding areas, those had the highest residue and lowest geography on a field. They took it the hardest from frost, you know? So it's like, man, you know, as far as getting any good information this year, I think it's going to suck. I'd be curious if you guys are looking, anyone doing variable rate fungicide or anything, and we got more people looking at that because of the mold, you know, on different soil types, lower lying areas. Do you see any, any customers your way doing Real berate fungicide are looking into that from a research standpoint. I have not nothing, heard any. Yeah, okay. nothing quantitative. I mean, we we do have some guys spraying low line areas, separate, you know, areas that have ponded more. This year has just been so tough because the lack of moisture overall. I mean, we're barely getting enough water on with these pivots to okay. keep the plants alive. And I don't know what you've seen, Mike, but I haven't seen any white mold in beans yet. No, it's it's a pretty low incidence year just because we have it's it's dry. I mean, we're just barely keeping. It. It's not a moist environment at all. <laughs> it's uh, our pivots are going over, but uh, they're drying out in in a few minutes later, and and then that environment just isn't there for the white mold uh, like it normally is. Typically, we do get beans that are waist high overhead irrigation. You can imagine, Paul, that's a pretty good environment for white mold to start up, and we do have some parts like that. Um, going back to population, you know, we were talking about good areas, cutting back to populations and such and our low lying areas and then tougher soils. But we do have we, we do fight pH quite a bit in our area, too. 
uh, where high pH is where we do kick up the population higher in those environments. And then when the population neutralizes and we cut back the pops on that, do you have pH issues? So we, we, we have the other extreme low pH. We had, I don't, I haven't seen anything from a problem with high pH, but we get low pH. I was, as one field, it was a 4.7 pH range. It just, you know, that's, that's really low um, plants that are, you know, corn talking corn plants here, one, two feet tall. And then you get away where, in a different zone in that field and the pH was back to six and a half, well, you'd have a six foot plant. So is that, is that your sands? Sandy yeah, soils? and it's generally more, more of the sands, low organic matter type soils. Yeah. That we get more leaching and everything else too. So um, not a, not a lot of area would be like that. And that's partially comes back to our, our parent material as well that we have in Eastern Ontario compared, you know, everyone's got parent material soils that mother nature laid down and uh, just the difference that we have here compared to Nebraska. So, so, and then corn population-wise, again, we I do studies every year and, and tend to go that that 26, 30, 34, 38,000. I've done that for, for years. Always take new products that come out of our impact plots. And I've got a lot of great customers that'll do split planters. And it's, you know, in general for our area, running into that, I'm going to say most economics, 34 to 36,000. Last year, we had a phenomenal year last year. We had rain, timely rains just that week before flowering for corn. And we were 30 to 40 bushels more yield last year on average. And we had that 40,000, um, 38, 40,000 plants in, in the population trials that were the most economic. But that's something I generally don't go there, but more than that, 34, 36,000 for our growing environment. I'm with you. I mean, last year mm-hmm. we did we did some just not really population studies, but we had some growers push the limits, put 40, 42, 45,000 out on certain hybrids. And last year it worked and, and it worked well. And historically that doesn't work. You know, usually the, the plant itself can't hold up to it. Uh, and we end up with, you know, lodging issues or, or brittle because of storms. But man, I, I really think if we're going to keep pushing these limits, we have to figure out how to get more plants per acre it, through all environments. Yep, then we've more. done a lot, lot of work our way too, is trying to do with fungicide. We generally don't get as much a, a response on fungicide and corn just because we don't seem to get you know, northern leaf blight, gray leaf spot diseases. I mean, tar spots coming into east or to western Ontario, and it's it's about two two hours west of me, but we haven't seen anything yet, knock on wood. So we've had a lot, your- of these, a lot of these big storms come across the Midwest and clip just kind of this, you know, the Great Lakes and, and moving across. So it could be out there. We just have not seen it yet. You don't have much corn on corn then, I imagine, with the... Yeah, no, with we the rot- tend, with the rotation, I, I would say, Mike, we're maybe 5% average acres would be corn on corn in yeah. the area that I'm at. And, and a lot of that would be livestock guys that they put the corn on corn behind the barn where the manure goes. <laughs> yeah, and build up a little rootworm population there, I imagine, too. Exactly. So I, I follow you a lot on, on Twitter, Paul, and I'm always watching your posts, and I always appreciate those. And... It, I find things interesting as the year progresses, you know, I, I think it was the first week of July, you were, you were educating guys on white mold in beans. And then we were getting closer to maybe the third week of July and you were educating a lot of guys on aphids. I'm curious, you know, soybean aphids, and is that a yearly situation for you as far as aphids go? 
No, it it's like this. We haven't had soybean aphids in our area until this year. Probably, I'm going to say a, a big outbreak for at least four or five years. And again, they, they overwinter in our area in buckthorns, but a lot of it gets blown in with the right weather patterns, but they get blown into our area. And in just eastern Ontario this year, and then also in the Quebec, we've had some folks that have had this spray two to three times just to really? keep the aphid population down. And and we look at, you know, beneficial with, with ladybugs and lace wings and everything else. They were there, but just not there to the level um, that they normally were. And just so, yeah, it's it was, you know, a lot of guys were, were sore from sitting on sprayers and we're glad. I think we're kind of through the now eight levels are seem to start to be dropping off and we're getting into our five or six stage. So an application of an insecticide, once you start getting beyond that stage, really is not you know, from a threshold level doesn't really pay. So guys are happy that way. But yeah, we had unbelievable pressure with soybean aphids this year. Yeah, that's the, the, been something new. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, I guess the reason I asked that, it was, I mean, years ago we had aphids in Nebraska and, and for a couple of years, it seemed like they were something to really watch. And, and then they've been fairly non-existent for, I don't know, what, Mike, five, six, yeah. seven years? I mean, it just- Five, six years, yeah. You know, we- we have epidemics that'll break out. Some years it's like a painted lady, thistle caterpillar outbreak, and then you'll have aphids come out. And uh, this year, last couple of years, it's been the Japanese beetles chewing on soybeans. It's just things kind of come and go. I'm kind of hoping these Japanese beetles go pretty quick. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we 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 don't see a lot of Japanese beetle damage in in soybeans in our area. I have a lot in my flower beds, but. But that's it. But I think the soybean aphid, again, it's mother nature's way of maybe just, you know, you go in, in cycles and up and down, right? And it mm-hmm. was just our year. It'd be interesting to see what, what happens next year. But um, that that's probably the big the big two white mold and soybean aphids that we've had to contend with uh, in our area this year. Well, but I see you, I, I see another thing. Sorry, Mike. I see another thing as we get towards the end of July and August that you had, and that was around uh, phytophthora root rot and soybeans. And we've been starting to see more Phytophthora around. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me more about that in your area. So, yeah, we, we started to see a bit more. And, and again, I, I'm going to say some of the stuff I've seen, I hate to say it, but it's been with competitive seed companies. But Phytophthora tends to like that more, you know, compacted, low-lying, heavier soil comes in earlier on. And then you get to your plant basically dying off, still holds the leaves and everything else and wilts. Um, we, we've got certain varieties that have got Phytophthora race resistance, but then we also have Lunacina, which is a seed treatment that helps with, with Phytophthora. So it was interesting, this customer went out there, looked at it, had a few plants in the field, and it's like, man, I would have thought our Lumacina would have held it off, but then he told me it was a competitive product that did not have that seed treatment. So different things that we're, we're working at, at Carteva, you know, putting it on with Pioneer, not to say that we can't get that with our products, but that tends to see where we got more, more and more phytophthora showing up this year. And again, we were wet, you know, earlier on May, June, July, and, and we seem just to get these different patterns now that, that there's no consistency to it. But we tend to be seems to be wetter, then we get dry, and then wet later fall, like into August, September type time frame. So how do you deal with that? And, and just keeping an eye on top of these diseases kind of going forward. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was bringing that up because that the Lumacina really does seem to be paying off, you know, as far as Phytophthora goes, because I've seen the same thing. And again, we're super dry, but as much as we run these pivots around, you're exactly right. We hit those uh, heavy clay spots or high 
water holding capacity areas that we're continuing to put water on. And those we are starting to see some phytophthora show up in those pockets. And and honestly, a lot of it's been in competitive, you know, soybeans uh, or non lumicina treated soybeans. So I think that that technology is coming forward really well. And then obviously the screening that you guys are doing to help us find field tolerance of it is, you know, field tolerance and varietal tolerance is, is good too. I guess one thing we got to think about too, though, with seed treatments, I mean, they eventually do wear off too, right? Yeah. And depending on, on the seed treatment and, and disease or pests that we're looking at, but, you know, generally that 60 to 80 days or, you know, 45, 60, depending on what we're looking at. So just keep that in mind from a, from a customer standpoint, but definitely, what, yeah, definitely happy with Lumicine and, and what it's bringing to the market. What do you mean, yeah. Paul? We can't have seed treatments last the entire year. <laughs> no, I, yes, I wish. <laughs> it's a little coating on yeah. a seed and it's going to last yeah. all season long. Isn't yeah. that amazing? It, it, it's, that's a, it's a great point to bring up because we do talk, we start to see things as this crop matures. It's like anything else, right? You know, the older you get, the less your immune system is uh, active to keep things uh, healthy. It's the same thing as these plants. Like everything right now, they are looking for a reason to die. And we can't have what we did earlier on always carry us all the way through the end, you know, so that, that your point about the seed treatment and longevities of it and what it's there really to do is a great point. Well, it's, we, we see that with our soybean aphids. So, so folks that have an insecticide seed treatment or don't, because with our insecticides on, on soybeans, we can get 45 to 60 days protection with the so, with soybean aphids. So depending on, on when you plant it and everything else and have it or don't have it, definitely a big difference there but eventually you know guys well we're getting into three months 90 days well how come my insecticide's not working well it's just it can't stay around forever that's that's pretty good if you can get 60 days out of a seed treatment insecticide for Hmm. that and just hold them back that's that's all you could ask for there i mean that's that's pretty good mother nature and crops want to want to mature and get on and bring the next offspring on right i mean it's i just noticed this weekend here the some of our trees are starting to drop leaves already and it's, yep. it's a signal that uh, that winter is coming and, and it's time to get on with the season so paul on your soybeans i was gonna i wanted to ask you the yield levels you get and and how do you push yield harder we're always trying to push yields harder in nebraska <laughs> but uh what do you guys do to push yields yeah so i guess on on average we're in that 45 to 50 kind of bushel range we got some guys you know we've been hitting 65 70 75 last few years but if I, I'm talking to growers, the biggest thing is is planting date for us. And when we did, I did some planting date studies here. We could pick up three to five bushels by planting two weeks earlier. You know, we used to always be the May long weekend, you know, May 20th long weekend guys would wait. Well, we started moving that up. And it's it's to me, as, as long as the ground is fit, if it's the end of April, and when I talk fit that, that I can run a planter through, I'm not worried as much on beans as I am on corn for earlier planting, just because if I lose five or 10% of beans, that's not as bad as losing five or 10% of corn. So planting dates first, um, definitely watch, you know, from a fungicide standpoint, disease standpoint, we control, you know, we're just starting to get into the enlist uh, weed control system here in our area, just starting to get genetics there, but starting to see more um, mare's tail come in, horsetail, water hemp, it's just starting to come into our area. So those are things that we, we got to take a look at as well. But but that and, and then it's it's getting a good stand though too. I mean, don't go and mud stuff in. You gotta have a one shot deal and making sure that, that we're doing that properly. Yeah. So just adding a little growing season at the beginning of the year versus exactly. Open. And it's 
it's again i like to have that six trifoliates on my plant it, you know maximize that factory by by the first of july and on the research work that we did here locally you know you take a look at the first first of july that i'd have beans that have flowers on and the ones that were two weeks later that had no flowers on they'd be you know, six versus two three trifoliates well, that, that's a big difference in terms of, of branching capabilities of putting more flowers on, more pods, and that whole factory size at the end of the year. So it's all about that factory, building the biggest one I can going into the reproductive stage for soybeans is what I really preach to my customers going forward. So do you see, do you see uh, with those taller beans, are you seeing extended internode length then? Or do you are you trying to find a way to stack these pods and keep the beans shorter? Because I would I would say that growing season only allows so many nodes, right? So even if you have seven foot tall beans, you're only going to have X amount of nodes. Right. So are you doing anything to maybe minimize that height to keep more agronomics there, in it? There, and There's nothing really that we've done. I know like you folks in the U.S. you would spray Cobra or different stuff to kind of knock back, um, maybe just knock back that growth, but we don't have products like that that we can technically use registered here and in Ontario, so that that's a bit bit of a different world. So no, I haven't looked at that, Adam. That's maybe something we should be looking at and uh, and kind of go from there. Curious what you guys might be doing different in Nebraska than we're doing here in Ontario. Um, can we say this on the air, Mike? I, I um, think I, I'm thinking the same thing you're thinking, so you might as well say it. <laughs> some drift issues from extend beans onto enlist, and in a few cases, uh, I don't know if I'd quite recommend that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. Uh, it, 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 it. That was. Just, it, it's being... been a, a big issue this year in Ontario. We, we've had a lot more people, and again, because of weed spectrums and everything else that have gone, you know, extend is still um, big in my area, and, and growers are starting to go to that herbicide system. But we've had a lot of issues with with tank cleanout, with with drift, and everything else going forward. So I think that's something. You know, I'm not, I'm not. You know, in some cases, maybe it's growers that were out there when it was too windy. We've had such a an issue this year with wind and 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 rainfall and being able to get herbicide control, we control down. But um, I think in general we got to be cognitive of the issues that we have with that extend system and drift, and make sure that we're you know doing good stewards going forward. And I think that's where our enlist system is going to be a, a big key player with that to resolve some yeah. of the issues going forward. It's it's it, 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 for us. It's all education. I mean, it's just <laughs> learning to what it means to clean the sprayer out using tank cleaners, making sure that's done well. Um, a lot of our cupping is self-inflicted sometimes when you don't have it cleaned out as well. Not saying that there isn't a bunch coming from a, a neighboring crops, but as Enlist gets adopted, it's going to be less and less dicamb in the atmosphere and, and we'll have less and less cupping on that. The big issue we're seeing right now is the extend system had to get done spraying in our area into June. Uh, we're seeing weeds poke through the top of the uh, extend beans now. The, the water hemp's poking through, the palmer's poking through. Uh, Enlist, they're still clean because they could spray a little bit later. So, and uh, we've had that too with some of our retail, you know, folks that uh, that apply product. Um, they've they've told customers certain cutoff date and June twenty fourth seemed to be one for our year that guys were not to would not apply beyond those dates. So similarities there as well, which I can understand from, uh, you know, crop safety and they don't want to get into um, lawsuits and other issues. 
it, it's always it's always scary when you're switching switching technologies in in anything and just the adoption of it and getting people to understand what what the do's and don'ts are when for us it seems very elementary i guess or when you're around it a lot you're like well yeah duh you know you just want to throw out the duh flag like what are you guys thinking but we have to remember that these people aren't around it all the time like we are I, I'm going to date myself, Adam, because I was around when we had Roundup Ready beans come on the market and the same thing with Roundup Ready corn. And we went through the same things. And it's all it's all from sprayer clean out and also planter or drill clean out as well. Right. Because, yeah, you, you got people that we're, we're in the same boat as you, Adam. I think we're not, you know, we're not 100 percent enlist. We're just starting to get into that. So we've got we've got enlist. We've got extend. We also have IP beans in our area. So so guys that are doing you new know, non GMO beans and you just you get a, a mixture of what's going to go through the planter and through the sprayers. And again, we just got to educate, work together with, with farmers in the ag industry and just, just take our time when we think about managing, you know, all this going forward. Great. Lots of education. Um, and you do it. You do a gr- great job educating, by the way. Thanks. Paul, it's it's I fun. Just... You know, I, I love, I love Twitter and love, I love sending information. I think a lot of people at Pioneer and agronomists and, product agronomists are, are passion is working with customers and, and really trying to help them out and and that's what i like doing i mean it's uh yeah it's great making making a sale for corn but at the end of the day it's even better going to help a, a customer figure out stuff and and that's part, part of what i i really like doing um with my job so yeah yeah if you want to follow paul on twitter it's the herminator right the, the herminator, herminator. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like terminator only the herminator, herminator. <laughs> I, I just love it. So you've been getting into the, the yield estimator tool also. I see that. and Just started what, getting into the last week, and, man, you start looking at – we're starting to see some 220, 230, 240, you know, yield estimates come in on, I'm going to say, the lower index part of the field because, again, I was doing this for some meetings and just jump in the first 24 rows, right, to mm-hmm. grab cops to show customers, well, if I got to the, the really good parts of the field, I think we're, we're set up for a really good year – Corn wise, I think 80% of our crop is is going to be phenomenal. So I'm excited about that. I like the yield estimator app, especially you know, comparing product, you know, side by side split planters. I've done some work with nitrogen trials this year, population, um, with nutrition, no nutrition. So it's a simple way just to kind of go in and take a peek around because it's one thing to look at data at harvest time, but it's it's down to go in there, get a sense of what's going on. So when we get to harvest, we can really understand what what happened more so throughout the growing season but on that yield estimator paul what do you what do you put in do you vary the uh kernels oh, per bushel you're opening a can of worms yeah right that's a, a big can of worms I, I was using it this weekend and i just had a question maybe about we it, should have know? a test a test weight conversation also that's it. <laughs> man we'd we'd be here till christmas time and right well, i'd start you know start throwing stuff at so, so that, yeah, it's, it's, I generally, I mean, you know, when you do the yield estimation app, I'd rather estimate a bit under than over Oh, yeah. because I want, I want to make my, you know, I want to be realistic, right. And, and shoot for, shoot for what I ought, you know, what I realistically think is going to be out there. But I generally use 90,000 uh, seeds per, per, or kernel per bushel. I've been going to 85 to 80, depending on the variety. And that's just kind of knowing the varieties that they're, sorry, the hybrids that we sell in our area. And then we, we're starting to do, we did some work here in the last couple of years where we did, um, you know, high 36, 40,000. And then we did some 18 to 20,000. And we, we did some work actually doing kernel weights, looking at that. And how does that re- correspond back to kernels per bushel? So it's just, 
it's more local research and doing that. But in general, I use that 85 to 90 for my area. <clears throat> I know it's going it's going to vary depending on, on hybrids. It's going to be different hybrids. You know, they have a deep kernel versus not. And, and yeah, I, I always struggle with that because I'm I'm walking impact plots and I'll be in a 95 day hybrid. Next day I might be in 105, and next day I might be in 115 day. And uh, you know, the earlier season corn hybrids, their, their kernels just smaller. I mean, how, how do you adjust for that? And I, I probably agree, 85 to 90 is probably what you should be using for a lot of that in that sub 100. Exactly, and it's going to capture. You know what? On my 200 or 160 or, or 240, I'm not trying to get it down to within two or three bushels, but just get me in the ballpark and. And then, you know, some of my customers still might have some product that's not uh, marketed. Well, they can use that as a tool if they got an opportunity, right? Just get a quick mm -hmm. sense of what's out there. Okay, yeah. so it, are you using it, though, kernel size or kernel weight? That's what it comes down to me. Because you look yeah. at some of these, we know you have to have large, full kernels through that whole ear to get big bushels. But it also has to weigh because there's a lot of these that, that throw large kernels that are very light kernels that just don't weigh mm -hmm. per kernel so how do you how do you really in your mind start start figuring that out okay what am i going to use because if you go you look at some of these hybrids with really good test weight very small dent and, and they're just a heavy kernel but they're small those outweigh these large kernels and we sell on weight we don't sell on on volume anymore so what do you use that is a factor there i I know where you're at, Adam, on that. That's hard. hard. Because when you look at it, when we sell corn, right, 80,000 seeds, 80,000 seeds per bag. And those things weigh anywhere from what, 35 pounds to 64 pounds. Yeah. All right. That's one bushel. Yeah, or, you know, 56 pounds is one bushel. So anything less than that, you're getting less than a bushel, but you're getting 80,000 kernels still. The, the test weight thing is, is, is basically just, uh, you know, when you take it to the elevator, and am I going to get docked or not? And, and there's a lot of people talk about, you look at that bushel cup, what can I get in that bushel cup? And certain hybrids, you know, just based on the characteristics of the kernel and size and everything else, can't get as much in there. So I, I don't know. I'd rather, yeah. I, I I would rather the industry go to, let's look at kernel weight. Kernel weight, absolutely. And, and kernel weight, that's what we sell And if you take a look at a lot of our hybrids that we have, at least in our area, we've got good plant health and everything else, but we can really pack that on later in the growing season like this. We're a good month away, 30 days roughly to, to black layer, and it's, it's August the 15th here. So I want to have healthy plant, lots of nitrogen available, fungicide on to give as much kernel weight packing in there as much as we can. And that's a lot of the hybrids that we have in my maturity. That's, that's what we got to do to get yield here at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm not going to put this thing to bed yet. We're going to carry it out because that exactly what you <laughs> said. Like if you're going through the field and you're looking at your combine tank filling up, you're watching that. You're going, oh, man, this has to be 250 bushel corn. I haven't even made it this far through the field. And look how full it's getting. Then you load that on your on your semi and you go take it across the scale. And you're like, eh, it's OK, 56, 57 pound test weight, whatever. But, man, it filled that combine up faster. It filled, sure is filling these trucks up. You know, you can't get as much weight on it. And, and you're all good. You know, you're not, like you said, you're not taking any docks or whatever, but at the same time you get to another hybrid and it's not filling that tank up near as fast. Feels like, right. You're going through the field and you don't see your combine tank filling up quite as bit. And then all of a sudden you, you're loading that semi up you go across the scale and you're like, geez, how did we not break the springs on this thing? You know, this load weighs so much more than the other load. Now then you have to go back to, okay, how many acres 
did it take to get that load versus that first load? And which one is actually paying you more? You know, you may have had to go a few more acres to fill up that bin as fast in the combine, but it substantially weighs more when you get to the elevator. You got paid substantially more. It made more 56-pound bushels than that acre right next to it that went. You didn't have to go as many acres to fill it, but weighed significantly less. So kernel kernel weight and number of kernels per ear. That's that's all it is. And the, I, and I, I would put in there kernels per ear, but also kernels per acre. Kernels per acre, absolutely, yeah. Because now we're getting and, and and we you know looking at it's it's a combination of all and then population, but then there's a fine line between pushing one too much versus the other, and where mm-hmm. where where is that inverse relationship? Where is that inverse relationship? And some of these hybrids that we have, there is a, a drastic inverse relationship of that. And some of these that'll fill fill fast in a year like this, they do very well. But some of these late filling kernels in a year like this, yeah, your kernel counts there, your kernel, you know, your kernel per acre is there, but all of a sudden your weight's gone, you know, and but you have a big fluffy kernel still. You're going, well, what the hell? Everything looks really good and it just doesn't weigh out. I think I'm going to just say something, and I'm not sure if you want to just put it in part of your thing, but it comes in this big debate about Ken Ferry talks about is it a first quarter, a second quarter, third or fourth quarter hybrid? And, oh, yeah. Right. And 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 I got a, a private agronomist that's doing a lot of research work with that here, too. And do we want to get into that debate or not? But a lot of our hybrids are what we call D hybrids that last 30 days, at least for my area that I've seen that can pack more into that kernel weight than let's say other hybrids. Yeah, just something that's got late season plant health, stay green, they keep filling. As long as there's season there, they keep filling. Exactly. Like 9188 would be one. You look at it and it's like, oh my God, where is it going to get its yield? But it's because of deeper kernel, I think more kernel weight to it. What? Yeah, well, 1185 for us, Mike, that's a perfect example. I mean, that thing isn't a showy ear whatsoever, but man, it yields when it gets the weight on it. Yeah. And then I think I think we have to also discuss a little bit, though, between, Mike, what you said, like plant health. Obviously, we want that plant alive as long as possible, but visually looking at plant health and if that plant's green and looks great versus its, its kernel structure, those things are different also because we do have some that have tremendous great plant health. Take 1082. I mean, that sucker stays green forever. But yet, if the environment's just not right for it, those kernels shrink up, right? Tip back and or you get less weight per kernel. So that kernel structure and that ear type doesn't necessarily match that plant type. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense, Paul? Yeah. I would like to know, Paul, out of everything you've done the last few years, what are some aha moments or anything that you have found that you can really quantify and say, this is giving us more bushels by doing these things? So if I look at corn, I mean, it definitely is planting depth, planting into proper conditions, not, you know, when the calendar flips and it's, we're getting to the end of the April, just don't go. So really, really paying attention to soil conditions. You only get one chance, right? Once you open that bag, that yield drops off. So let's make sure that we get that uniform crop out of the ground. And then, you know, going forward, I think whether it's corn or beans, it's going to be water availability. Again, we, in Eastern Ontario, we can't just go and turn the taps on and off. And, and if I take a look at, at what's going on in the world, I think water is going to be a bigger thing and the irrigation is going to be under scrutiny. What can I do as a grower to increase my water holding capacity? And, and that's things like increasing organic matter, you know, crop rotation, cover crops, 
those different things to to hold more moisture especially for us it's we seem to run into that july we we get dry conditions at two weeks before and after pollination for corn which is most critical so what can i do to to make sure that that corn crop gets through that and then usually we will we'll start to get a rain or one or two good ones in august that'll get us through august but it's that that mid-july time frame for corn what, what can we do there to to boost it and then, and then the late late season plant health, making sure we have ample nitrogen. In our area, we, we got a great capability with our soil to cook nitrogen. It, it's it's compared to Southern Ontario, our, our soils, if we get hot, dry conditions, it just produces a lot of nitrogen in our soils. And so haven't had a whole lot of response to doing things like split nitrogen and everything else. But this year, again, we had some rain, seven inch rains at one period. You know, I think a split nitrogen application or, or more nitrogen this year, Time will tell here, but it would definitely pay off. When you say split, what are you talking? Uh, it would be just side dressed that so, yeah, so, side corn? Side dressed, you know, in that six to eight leaf stage, you know, V6, V4, V6. Some guys going in at V10, wide dropping, but the majority of, of customers would be doing a 28% application. More guys switched to urea this year just because of, of the price differentiation. And so went to high boy spreaders and just blew it over the top. And Adam's, if you can see me, I'm shaking my head. I hate that. But, but but differences in, you know, again, differences in environment and in, in climates and everything else. But we've had more guys do that and, and generally not, you know, sure it might discover the leaves for a bit, but in general, um, the yields are there and everything else going forward. But I just don't, more, I, I, I don't I like it. I'm not a huge fan. I just me personally. And this is just my opinion. We're seeing more because of the economics this year, fertilizer, but in general, more, more growers would be, um, when they're coming back with uh, 28%. Yeah, I just had to... I, I, knifing it in or, or wide dropping it. Yeah, wide dropping, if we can get that figured out more, if we can figure out the eff efficiency to get across the field better with that, that's a huge game changer, I think. You say your beans are 45, 50, 60 bushel. You're probably not putting supplemental in on them, are you? No, we haven't. No, we have, haven't done any of that. And the kind of when we start thinking of that seven or eight year bushel up, that's uh, where I would probably start approaching that. Um, we did a few years ago, we did sulfur, added sulfur on and, and definitely got, and I have to go back to the numbers, but it was about a three to five bushel response. But again, on the lighter, more sandier soil, low organic matter type soils that we got that response with sulfur. So that's something I always talk to growers about as well. And just again, sulfur in general, especially for, for winter wheat too, alfalfa, it's just something I think it's got to be in every, every crop basically. Yeah. And what I find interesting about this is you're, Years like this for us, extremely challenging year is where the practices that work on rougher acres in good years are the practices we need to do on the best acres in years like this. And, and what I mean by that is every every year we have, like you said, those lighter soils or the, just a marginal acre that doesn't produce as well over time. And, and we're always trying to learn how to manage those acres better. Right. And they seem to always be a little bit different than what we do with our highly productive acres. Those highly productive acres just don't take as quite as much work because we we get we get what I call freebies. Usually something in the weather, something in the soil, something has given us that freebie to make it a highly productive acre, which we aren't always able to quantify. But then we get a year like this year for us in, in Nebraska that we have zero freebies. There is not, there hasn't been one thing free to us to help this crop get better. And what we have learned off of those marginal acres really should be implemented into all of the acres this year to keep 
yield levels high. And that is high amounts of sulfur, better water management, you know, crop rotation, um, cover crop, you know, those types of things at some point in, in bad years will be favorable on every acre. So it's, you know, back to what you're saying is, you know, it's learning, but then implementing on large scales. How do we, how do we do this more effectively everywhere? And just my two cents from a big picture standpoint, because we, sure. if we continue going down this road, that if weather patterns stay similar or we have changes, I mean, Dr. Schusler said it last time, it's not that we can't produce in these environments. It's just, we need to be prepared for what these environments are going yeah. to be and find those management practices that work on both ends of the extreme. That That's the big thing. I think we just got to be able to adapt to what, what mother nature is throwing at us on these different environments. And I, I don't have all the answers. I don't know if anyone does, but as time goes on, we're going to figure it out and, and, and have, you know, not only genetics, but then also it's all the other agronomic management <clears throat> tools that we have available today that, that we didn't have, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago that we can bring to the table to help us get there. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I you know, last year, <clears throat> mother nature tossed us a lot of softballs. We had good rain. We had, good mineralization of our organic matter. Uh, it's the years like this where we learn and and adapt and and get better at managing because this is a challenging year. It's tough to grow the crop. And uh, like you mentioned, you just got to adapt to what you get dealt that year and, and adjust to it. Yeah. And these are the frustrating things for me. You know, Paul, all the work that you do and all the studies that you do, it's not just one year's worth of data. And then we try it the next year. And if it doesn't work, you throw it away. You know, it's everything that you've done, you combine that and see if you can use it successfully over the next three or four or five years. And I'm afraid too many people this year are going to throw a bunch of data away because it doesn't represent what it should have the last maybe two or three years. I, I always go back and I've got on my wall in my office, I got this little chart and it says, if I got one environment with a three bushel yield difference, and I'm picking hybrids, I got a 51% chance of picking the one that's got three bushels more than the other for next year. And if I go up to 10 or 30 environments, well, then it increases to, you know, 70 or 80% confidence. And that that's one thing that I like doing a lot is, is having a lot of data across my geography. I try and get 20 to 30 plots of data agronomically or hybrid comparisons, soybean varieties, whatever, but then try and compete that for one or two or three years just to build that confidence. And it, it's an exact, you know, don't just throw something out this year because it didn't work. Um, take a look at history. Talk talk to the folks on the podcast here or your pioneer rep. A, a lot of data that we have that we can give you to help you, you know, figure out what you're going to do for the 2023 growing season. Go into the season with a plan similar to what you've done or slightly different to what you think will be better. But then Mother Nature changes that, and if you can't adapt to that in season, you always you're behind. And, and that's the point that I really want to get across is everything is now to me in season adaptation. It's not pre-planning. We're really good at pre-planning and collecting data. Like you said, after harvest, we can get things down to why things did what it did, but we can't duplicate it for the fact that we don't know if that August is going to be the exact same August as we had the year before. So how do you adapt in season? Truly in my mind, that is the only way we're going to continue to see True progression uphill is adapting with these applications in season and less upfront applications, whether that's fertility or, I mean, this is why you have to have seeding rate and hybrid correct. That why that is more important than anything else 
when you go to the field because you can't change that in season. Everything else you can change. I, I would hope, guys, that, that the folks that are listening into your podcast are probably the cream of the crop and always looking for new ideas. And to me, for in-season adaptation, I would I always try to encourage my customers, take 10 or 20 acres of your ground and try something new, try something innovative. It's not going to break you. you. You know, if you if you get minus 10 bushels on corn on those 20 acres, it's not going to mean the farm's going to be for sale. But we all have to learn. And, and the best way of doing that is doing, you know, split planners, agronomy trials, just something that totally is off the cuff that you've never thought about. Try that on your farm and see. And, and that's that's where we're going to get the benefit to help to to deal with some of these changes going forward. If we don't try stuff new, it's kind of that definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over the same way and expecting different results. Well, we gotta we gotta change things up, try something new, and we're all gonna learn to you know for the benefit of of agriculture in the whole. People went into this year do uh, expecting to do what they did just last year because it was so good last year. If you went to one of those seminars and listened to them, you knew this year was going to be totally different. And it's going to yeah. be challenging. And like you said, populations, you can't change after you planted. But if you had gone to that and listened to it, it's going to be drier. It's going to be tougher. You could have, you know, kind of adjusted a little bit to it. It's kind of neat because it's, we have within our Grammar Insights app, field planning capabilities. And, and a lot of times, sometimes customers wait until harvest is done and everything else. But you've got a pretty good sense right now what's working, what's not working, can take notes and, and start putting field plans to it. I would encourage, and we're trying to encourage our customers, let's start that process earlier because it takes that stress away, you know, later in the season when we start getting into harvest and everything else. But then I think the sooner that we can do that, the sooner that we can maybe do some of this in-season adaptation. Here's my plan earlier, but okay, what didn't work this year because of it? Well, how can we overcome that? And again, you know, I, I just, I'm a big planner component to, you know, encouraging planning, using that moving forward. So I encourage listeners to look at that part of the Grammar Insights app. It's going to be coming out has, you know, the, I can plan crop protection, fertilizer as well, and, and get, you know, an overall big handle of what's, what's working for your farm operation. Yeah, agreed 100%, because right now when you're evaluating these products, you're not just evaluating to say, oh yeah, this one worked really good on this farm this year. You're evaluating it to see if that hybrid will work next year. And in what condition will it work next year? So if, if our growers aren't taking these notes and they're waiting just for the combine to come through, I, I hate it every year when you, you sit down after harvest is over and they're like, well, this hybrid did really well across the whole farm. Okay, what, what does that mean? Which, well, it didn't do so good over on this farm though, but it did really good on these others. Well, why is that? You know, what, what were the factors? Help us understand that so we don't, you know, put it in a similar situation as the one that it didn't perform in and we put it more in where it did perform. And then what hybrid can we find that will go into that field? Then instead of every year being a guess, you know, the next 30 days is the last time you're going to see it alive. Great point, Adam. Yeah. Why did it yield the way it did? And then adjust that for next year's conditions. What I really like is just is comparing notes from, I mean, we're miles apart, totally mm -hmm. different geographies, but we have a lot of similarities in terms of what we're doing to try and help our customers, you know, agronomy product wise, a lot of similar challenges. And, it, and it's just good to, be able to reach out and talk about this like i wish i could do this every friday morning we had a coffee but at the coffee shop or something right right <laughs> yeah yeah just so, a little, <laughs> little crop talk at the coffee shop exactly 
Yeah. Well, Paul, Paul, that's very interesting because the one the one thing that I have learned doing this podcast and being able to have a, a lot of guests from a lot of different areas and then just even my expansion of workload in Nebraska covering the whole state now instead of just a small geography is that the majority of us are all fighting the same battle. Yep. There's specifics within that battle that are different, but the scheme is all the same. And it's it's really interesting in our industry, we get into what is happening in our backyard and we want to fix that, that we don't look to see what is happening in other people's backyards that can be used for your backyard. If that makes any sense. That, that makes sense. In my area, I'm, I look a lot to Southern Ontario, New York state, Ohio, Michigan, because usually what happens there two weeks earlier, comes our way. Yeah. So you can kind of look at outside broader picture, see what's going on in other areas to help you kind of solve issues. But I think as a group in a whole, we generally don't do that because we just get in our day-to-day, like you said, fix our own little problems, but other people might have that same problem that could help us get to where we got to get to. Yeah. And it's not even, it, sometimes it's not even that specific product, you know, like, or problem, excuse me, like right now, everybody's talking about tar spot, right? That's one specific thing, huh. <laughs> excuse me, but it's, it's, what does that do to the crop? You know, it's the it's the mindset of what these things do to the crop that you have to start thinking instead of the one specific insect or pathogen. And then you can start managing on a larger scale of, okay, what can we do to one increase, you know, stay green late? Uh, You know, are these hybrids or varieties needing that? You know, all of those things. It just blows my mind how in agriculture so many of us get into our little box. And I agree with you. We get into our day to day to this one field has this one problem and I got to figure out how to fix it that you forget that the guys in Canada or Australia or Eastern Europe are going through the same thing. They're trying to grow a crop the best that they can with the least amount of uh, inputs or things that are necessary. So how do we, how do we bring that to everyone? Right. One big thing too, I try and talk to customers about is, you know, we're all looking for that silver bullet. Let's just, we got to get back to basics and basics of agronomy and understanding, you know, how the plant interacts with the agronomy and the weather that we're faced with. And I'd rather fix 10 little things, 1% than try and look for that one thing to fix 10%. And I think you folks have talked about that beforehand, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's a lot easier to fix 10 little things and get 10% gain than one thing, 10% and kind of move forward. I'm glad you brought that up. That got brought up to us on one of our earlier podcasts with with Mark Cottenmeyer, wasn't it, Mike? Yep, Mark said that. Because yeah. he got it from an economist somewhere, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm glad it's you brought really, that up. And I, and I think that will come back to this year, because in our footprint, I really feel our test plot data is going to be a little, it's not going to be great test plot data, because there's so many things going on in fields, just as far as residue, freezing, and that kind of stuff. But what Adam said earlier, learning why hybrids yielded the way they did on a whole field basis and not necessarily using it to put that hybrid back in that same environment, but understanding why it did that so you can adjust next year for what next year is going to deal you. And uh, I think that'll be very important for us to keep adapting to the year's environment. Record keeping and communication in agriculture is critical. My mind is so boggled today with this cold. I can't think of what the hell's going on. I don't even know where we're at. Mike's telling me we're way over time. <laughs> Way, way over time. Way, way over time. But I just want to finish out with thank you, Paul. Uh, thanks for all the work you're doing. Keep sharing stuff on Twitter. Uh, you know, keep sharing stuff however you can. I mean, I get your your uh, egg sense 
updates. Those things are fantastic. And that brings back to, to this communication piece. I mean, Mike and I, we're on a different platform where we have the opportunity to, to call out people like yourselves and say, hey, will you come talk to us? You know, and we have a reason for that because of podcasts. A lot of people don't have that reason, but I would encourage them to reach out to to your counterparts, to people that you don't know and just say, hey, saw you on Twitter. What does this mean? Or I saw your information. Tell me more about it, because we get I get a lot of updates now from a lot of people across the country. And like I said, it is amazing how similar our struggles are and the brain power that we have to get things uh, to find solutions. If we just communicate, that's my two cents. Communication. Communication. I really appreciate, yeah, Mike and Adam, you guys do a lot of great work, especially with your podcast and everything else. And, and it's, we can learn so much from each other. Thanks for the opportunity and keep up the great work. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Mike.